Our guest this week, Glenn Healy, a Stanley Cup winning goaltender, an incredible analyst, and the head of the NHL's Alumni Association. Joe Tilly's great Canadian sports show, coming up! Welcome to the program. Today's guest is a Pickering native. He played four years at Western Michigan University. He was an NCAA tournament MVP, second team All-American. He started 496 games over 16 NHL seasons with the LA Kings, the Islanders, the Rangers, and the Leafs. He's a former analyst at TSN Sportsnet Hockey Night in Canada, former executive with the NHLPA, the president and executive director of the NHL Alumni Association right now. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the program. Glenn Healy. Glenn, good to have you here, my friend. You know, nothing about bagpipes. Like, you know, you could have thrown in something about bagpiping, you know. Give me a Don't little Don't worry about there. it. We, were, we uh, will get to the bagpipes. One of the, one of the best openings I've seen on any uh, podcast anywhere. That's a stunning bit of work you put in there, so. Thank you. We can thank Vic for that for that uh, work. Our producer, he's 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 the man. He's the man. Uh, okay. So growing up in Pickering, I have to ask you, what's your, what's your favorite hockey game growing up in Pickering? Well, when I was five, and I was in Pickering, about seventy feet from the nuclear reactors, probably would have <laughs> had my pick a different house. Just saying, Nick Kiprio says the ball would never go on over the, the fence on one side, anyways, because that's nuclear side. Uh, but I, when I was five, I remember skating for the first time with Gordy House skates. I remember crying at kindergarten at Holy Redeemer, which is on Liverpool Road. doesn't exist anymore. Condos, shocking. Uh, and I remember being allowed to stay up and watch the Leafs win the Stanley Cup. That's it for five. And maybe I don't even remember anything from five to ten, but I remember that at five years old. And so my favorite team uh, would have been the team that my dad forced me to watch because when he came to Canada and he came here from Scotland, Toronto was the team to watch. And I thought I would stay up and watch Stanley Cups from now till forever. And this is just a regular, this is like Christmas, Easter. It happens every year and I haven't seen it since. And I can collect my CPP now because I'm that old. So my favorite team back then would have been the Toronto Makers. And when I got to sign with them at the end of my career, to say that it was a dream come true would be an understatement. First time I put that sweater on was an emotional moment that I can, again, still recall to this day thinking, wow, this is an incredible thing to get to play for the team that you watched when you were five and thought it would never end. It did, as we all know. Well, they they did win four Stanley Cups between 62 and 67. And I, I remember when I was five years old, I was I remember the 62 win, right? So uh very, very little, but I, I do remember the 67 one quite well because I was 10 by then. But uh, yeah, there was a time when it seemed like this was just going to happen every year or every other year. This is what, what the yeah. Leafs do. They win the Stanley Cups. Yeah, and uh, hey, it, it, there's a lot of players who've come through the door. Uh, when I played yeah, we, in New York, we went 53 years without winning a Stanley Cup. And we had three generations of Ranger fan that had not seen a championship. We had grandfathers, fathers, and sons. And when they went to game seven against Vancouver, you could see the sweaters of the three generations. 
know, you, you could see the sweater of, you know, a John Davidson or an Eddie Jockman, and then you would see, oh, the, the next wave, you know, and then there was the Mike Richter sweater. And, you know, for us, it was three generations of misery that we put to an end. And when I came to Toronto, uh, to say that I wasn't thinking the same script, that we could put an end to three generations, now four, of not seeing a championship with a lot of great players that have come through the door. No disrespect to them. We were close when I played there for the four years. We got to the semifinals right. a number of times. But it is a damn hard trophy. To win. It's, it's not easy. And uh, it, there was a simple recipe. 32 teams would have it, and they'd be all doing it. But uh, it will come. And I will get to take part in the parade as a bagpiper. Now, okay, <laughs> not the same as we want to float, uh, but not the same as getting your name on the trophy. But I'll make a hell of a lot of noise as we go down Young Street, wherever the parade route may be. And I'll be marching right behind you, Hills. Don't worry about it. We want to talk I'll about teach uh, you a little bit about Glenn Hills, the history. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, how did you become a goaltender? So my very first year, uh, I was playing with the Holy Redeemer Flyers, which was a, a hockey team that the age group was from five years old to nine. So to say that the five-year-olds were uh, overmatched would be an understatement, right? The nine-year-olds were clearly better. And uh, it was the buzzer system. So you would get on the ice. You probably remember some of the old arenas, McGregor yeah, yeah. Park, Heron Park. They didn't even have a roof, for goodness sakes, right? Um, and so the buzzer would go off, and you jump on the ice. And you, I kind of would get close to the puck. And uh, I got to go off now. <laughs> I didn't quite touch puck. And I would go back to the bench. And I went back on again. But I never went off. But I'll just keep going. And so that first year, I never touched the puck one time. Uh, just wasn't good enough. And my uh, brother was a goaltender. He had moved up uh, to a 10-year-old. And so the equipment was at the house. And my dad thought, in his infinite coaching wisdom, why get him to chase the puck? Just let the puck come to him. And at that point, I became a goaltender, uh, partially because we had the equipment and partially because I stunk so bad that first year and never touched the puck. So things <laughs> <laughs> all came together at once for me. Well, and you get to play the whole game. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, yeah. for sure. The buzzer doesn't go off for the goaltenders, right? Yeah. And, and hey, so, played uh, for multiple teams, by the way. So not only did I play the whole game, but I played the whole game in my teens. Because instead of wearing, like, red socks and playing for the red team and then going to play for the blue team and then the yellow team, if you wore blue jeans, you could play for any team. You didn't need to change your socks. So I played the first couple of years in jeans. So that's quite the fashion statement, too. Think about that one. Well, you're probably the coolest goaltender out there, no doubt about that. Uh, so how do you end up – okay, so um, how did you end up at Western Michigan? You spent four years there. Um, how did you end up going to Western Michigan and not choosing, like, say, a major junior like it's kind of like was the norm at the time. Yeah, I think it was that birth defect I had called no <laughs> talent. <laughs> yeah, I was growing up. I mean, look, we're from Pickering. I think we were like the honeybees and the Marleys and all the bigger teams. And so I played for the fun of it. I played to learn life lessons. I played to learn what sacrifice was to be a good teammate was sharing, you know, all the things that we want to teach our kids in life. And so when it got to the age of me potentially playing major junior, the big push in my house was, wouldn't it be unique to be the first educated Healy ever? Like that would be an accomplishment. So my parents pushed me to school. They wanted me to get a degree because they felt, look, if you learn, you earn, you'll be set uh, through the rest of your life and your journey. 
And so uh, I turned down some major junior opportunities, and uh, one of them was in Peterborough with Mike Keenan as the coach. I could only do Mike Keenan one time as a coach, so twice yeah. would have been catastrophic. Yeah. Uh, but I, I went to Western Michigan. They were a team that said you'll play every single game for four years and uh, ended up with a double major. And actually, that decision that I made way back when I was 16 or 17, and it's hard to make it at that age. You're very young. But that decision led to when I played in the NHL, if I didn't make it, I'm not going to say I didn't care because I did, but it didn't matter so much because I had plan B. And then if it didn't work out for three years, I had still had plan B. And 10 years, I still had plan B. Injuries, I still had plan B. Mm-hmm. And so my degree really helped me to play a career with some longevity. Uh, and then that degree has followed me with all of my journey through life where I've had to make tough decisions and have relied on some of the stuff that I learned way back when, when we joke Western Michigan is the Harvard of the West. It, it really is a daycare center. And I learned some good lessons <laughs> at daycare. So, <laughs> But you uh, you obviously, it was, it was a, in retrospect, it was the right decision. Is it something that you advise young players today is to, to go the, the uh, educational route? I think every player is different. It's Connor McDavid, uh, you know, I can remember meeting his dad at a local establishment and, you know, he was wondering, you know, my kid, uh, you know, we just want to make sure he makes it. I'm like, make it? Like, hello? <laughs> make it? Okay. That'd be like, uh, I just want to hope he gets to the Hall of Fame. Really? The Hall of Fame? <laughs> he started painting his clock. So for certain guys, you're a shoe in uh, to play in the National Hockey League. You just hope that injuries don't get in your way. Concussions don't take you down where the career isn't as long as you'd love it to be. But there are other players uh, that that journey is uh, it's not as easy. And, uh, you know, you you look at uh, the guys that, that desperately try to make it. Hey, we all have friends that would have done and given up everything to play one game in the NHL. So clearly that is the best job I have ever had and will ever have. But it's not for all. And uh, it is a tough thing to make. Every year at the podium, seven names are, are bounced off. And then the next year, it's seven more and seven more and sometimes eight. Yeah. And, you know, there's a big pecking order of players that are coming up to fight for very few jobs in the National Hockey League. When I started, there was 16 teams. So there was even less than there is today, half the number of jobs. My first year, there was 340 players in the league. Last year, there was 1,077. So great, more families get jobs, more players get the opportunity, but it's a worldwide league now. They scout throughout the planet and they try to find the best players and it's competitive as hell. So not for everybody, but it was for me. And I was a late bloomer. It took me a long time before I, I could actually figure things out, um, whether it be on the ice or off the ice. And so that time that it took me to develop, to get things in order, to become the player that I had to be, I needed that time. It was the right decision for me. So you're in Western Michigan, where you are in the school's Hall of Fame, I understand. That's pretty cool. Uh, so you... you, you uh, hey, by the way, uh, for whatever reason, I thought my senior year, I should sport a mustache. For anyone that's listening, never sport a mustache and have your picture go into the hall. You just don't quite look... You look like you're in a 70s porno. I'm just saying. So no mustache. Wish I had shaved it. However... But I am, Joe. Yes, thank you. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Okay, so uh, how did you get signed by the LA Kings? How did you go from Western Michigan to the Kings? Well, I was an undrafted player. I wasn't drafted at any league. Uh, and so, 
you know, we were playing in the, the finals and uh, there happened to be a couple of players that Los Angeles Kings had drafted. And uh, Gary Galley was one of them. Dave Ellett was another. And so Rogi Vashon and Pat Quinn came to watch these two players play to see if they had a chance of making the NHL. And I don't know why, but for whatever reason, I had a game. One of those things where you go, mm. really? I, you, know, when you, you know, when you shoot like 77 on the golf course and go, right. Is that really what I thought? That's me. I had one of those games. And, uh, you know, it was about 70 saves. We won the game. And Rogi Vashon said, ah, in his beautiful Rogatan Rosaire uh, Vashon accent, uh, why are we signing big guys? Why don't we sign that guy? He's pretty good. And they signed me. And that was my opportunity where the prison door opened, where I had a chance to show that I could belong with a bunch of men in the best league in the world. And that opportunity, uh, I seized it. And again, fate fell into play. And uh, probably if I didn't have that game, I wouldn't have signed. And then that lesson my parents taught me years back that go to school. If you learn, you can earn. I probably would have been working on Bay Street somewhere. But instead, I had an opportunity to have a long career. Yeah, that worked out okay. Uh, you know, things have a way of working out, but don't they? I mean, it, it's pretty, pretty uh, uh, synchronistic that uh, that Rogi Vanshaw would be there. He's a goaltender. You have a 70 save percentage. The Kings are kind of open to saying new talent and uh, and they say, let's sign that guy. So you ended up, uh, you know, uh, making, a, you know, a debut with the Kings, having four seasons in L.A. And uh, we got video of you facing an Oilers team that was pretty good at the time. And here you are robbing a guy named Yari Curry. Hey, not easy to do. How scary were yeah, those, you know, uh, <laughs> those teams? Well, you know, hey, we would we would fly up to Edmonton the day of the game, you know, and we'd fly commercial. We wouldn't even fly charter. And so this team had so many Hall of Famers. Guy with the puck there. I, I don't know who that was. Is Gretzky guy? I don't know. Uh, and Heard of him. You know, at the end of the first period, I'm not going to lie to you. There were times when it was six nothing, and you know we would actually leave the plane and just basically say, "Hey, keep the jet running. Like we're going to get out of here as fast as we can." Uh, we had a playoff game at one point, and the the glass broke behind the net. And the referee came over to tell. Now this is a big save right here. Watch this one. And oh remember yeah, that there, one. You there you go. There you go. That. That's Gretzky. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, we had uh, the glass break behind the net, and. Uh, it was a 9-2 score at the time. And the goal was to keep it under 10. That was the goal. Uh, <laughs> really lofty expectations. And uh, the glass broke, and the referee came over and said, it's going to take a little bit to fix the glass. And Packwood said, would it be okay to keep the clock running? <laughs> so, uh, they were the best team that I ever played against. And uh, some of it, look, it, we won a Stanley Cup in 94. And I think we at, at that time, so take you know years later, we still had 12 or 10 of their players in our system winning us a Stanley Cup. Uh, but the greatest player that uh, I ever played with was, was Wayne. When, you know, we got out of those yellow pants and the yellow sweater, uh, I can remember yeah. me Bob McKenzie a place in Wit in Pickering. And he said, well, what do you think of your new player you're going to get this week? And I, I thought, Bob, what, who are we getting? He goes, Oh, you're getting Wayne Gretzky. And I, and I honestly, it was nine in the morning and I, I I thought Bob had been drinking profusely all night. It had, he had to <laughs> getting Wayne Gretzky, like, and we got him. And the team went uh, to a new color of sweater, to being the toast of the town, to where every celebrity in L.A. would come to the games. 
where we, with one player, became an instant threat and a 100-point team and beat that Oiler team that won the Cup the year before in that very first round. So what a difference one player made to a city, to a team, to a league, because at that point, then it, in comes Florida, in comes Tampa, in comes San Jose. It just The list goes Phoenix. The list goes on and on where one player's impact in the South made for such a big difference, but made a big difference for our team. But playing against the Oilers, if that isn't the definition of fear, I don't know what is. Because I certainly would not say a word the whole day thinking, please get through the first period. And that was the big joke. It's great when you play the Oilers. Everyone gets to play, even all the goalies. <laughs> all of them. Yeah. All of them. So now, yeah, the, yeah, the uh, you know, you talk about, you know, Gretzky coming over. I remember at the front front cover of sports illustrated there's a shot of gretzky with magic johnson great yep. move gretzky was a caption and uh, i had that magazine that might still be kicking around somewhere but uh such a change in 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 you know the fortunes of the team obviously the way the the, the kings were you know uh looked at from you know the locals and everything else like tell us about that that night and day transformation for you guys well meet the kings uh used to be friends and family only. Like if you found one fan, arguably, who had been there, probably more than likely wearing her wedding dress, because why would you only wear your wedding dress <laughs> once? You might have to that function. But, well, the Meet the Kings, when Wayne got there, was uh, in Beverly Hills. And it was paparazzi. It was Neil Diamond. It was Paul Lanka. It was Ronald Reagan. It was John Candy. It was Tom Hanks. Like it was Sylvester Stallone. It was, it goes on, Goldie Hawn, it, on and on, the celebrities. And can recall, I drove a black Ford Escort uh, back in the day with no air conditioning in LA. Bad move, everybody. <laughs> Don't do that. Uh, but Paul Gates, Paul Fenton, and Lyle Fair and I, all on the team, driving together in this car. And as we pulled up, there was, you know, your typical galleyway to get you in and the barricades on either side, the fans. And the paparazzi, we stepped out of the car and you could hear the and it slowly dissipated to nothing. And I could hear one of the photographers going, who are they? Hey, look at the dog. And I said, oh, we're on the team. Hello. You're here for? Uh, that particular night, um, Paul Anka and Neil Diamond both sang. And I'm thinking, like, this is just incredible. Uh, but celebrities everywhere. You know, we had a game that year in the playoffs against Calgary. We were down, and Sylvester Stallone snuck into the room and tried to give us some big Rocky speech that yes. you know, being down being down 3-1 is just like Rocky on the ropes. This is where you want to be. Calgary's not where they want to be. And, you know, it's Rocky, and you're on the ropes, and, you know, rope a dope, and, you know, and then you'll go out and you'll win. And you walked out, and I looked at Kelly Rudy, and I said, I'd still rather be up 3-1, just saying. Like, I'd rather be up. <laughs> This rocky stuff, I'm not buying. So, but yeah, quite a quite an experience, and uh, you know, one old treasure because uh, it was such a such a night and day from the year before, where we could actually we could beat anybody up. We just couldn't beat you up on the scoreboard, and then we went from being able to beat you up and beat you up on the scoreboard. And there's that level of confidence going in every game that you're going to win. It's just when are you going to win by? End of the first, halfway through. Is it going to go to overtime? Maybe if the other team plays well, but uh, that swagger was certainly something you loved. 
Right. But you know, if you're down three, one, you don't have, or I mean, sorry, if you're up three, one, you don't have to slice the loan walking in your dressing room. So that was a really, yeah. Fortuitous moment yeah. for you. The training camp that year was in Victoria, BC. And uh, we had more media than the Stanley Cup final the year before that the Oilers had won. And I sat beside Wayne in that training camp. And I spent the entire training camp telling reporters to stop standing on my equipment. Because they'd stand on my goal pads and they'd get up higher with their camera. And I'm like, I got like no respect here, none. So that's what I, I was security for Wayne so I could have a little space to undress. So uh, memorable at best, Joe, for sure. Well, after the, uh, actually, there was a segment before Wayne showed up. It was called Ask a King. And we just happened to have a, a clip from that. Vic, can you roll that clip? This is pre Gretzky. LA. In Mesa, Arizona, he wants to ask Glenn Healy, what does your training during the season and the offseason consist of? So we got Glenn Healy in front of our cameras, and he answered the question. Well, Dave, I'd be happy to answer your question. I think the goaltender conditioning is one of the most important aspects of their game. They're out there for 60 minutes. You never get a break. You can't come to the bench like other players and take a rest, so you have to be in top shape. One of the biggest things I do in the summertime to keep up with my reflexes is to play squash. It's similar to racquetball, only use a, a quicker ball and a longer racket. Also, I work on my aerobic capacity with running, and I have a skipping rope that's 10 pounds, and I swing that around a little bit to work on my muscular component because as a goaltender, it's tough to, to do weights. Uh, they slow you down, and quickness is one of your best aspects of your game. You really have to work on that. During the season... It's essential that you stay in shape, do the skating with the team, take as many shots as you need in practice to stay sharp. Your conditioning is very important, and I work on it very hard. But after all, you have to have a lot of rest, and I like to have a, a little bit of fun also. like to have a little Seriously. fun also. What are you thinking there? What do you think? Look at that. Here's what I'm thinking. How did that guy ever get on TV? <laughs> That's the most boring interview I've ever seen or heard. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, again, uh, all lies. It's all lies. I apologize to the viewer. I lied to you. All lies. Uh, honestly, uh, I can recall my first training camp with LA and, and Marcel Dion refused to even stretch. He thought stretching was like, what, this is ridiculous. And so we got to that era and, and we joked that, you know, when the Russians came over, Sergei Priaking in 87 and then. You know, even that uh, Canada Cup, they just wrecked it because it was fun in the summer. And then all of a sudden, they came, we've got to work out. Like, we had a pretty good six months. Like, now it's a whole year of stuff. So, uh, but yeah, that's a young guy who's very boring. And I don't know how he ever got on TV. So maybe that's why I'm off now. <laughs> <laughs> I like the, uh, the intervals where you go. Swallow and yeah. the dog. It remind me of that, that John Candy character. From I like to have a little bit of fun as well. Okay, so you read between the lines. <laughs> oh, it's good though, man. So uh, after LA, you moved on to the Islanders. Uh, how did that happen? Uh, the uh... well, uh, Wayne Gretzky, who came over, uh, he went from Grant Fuhr to me. Okay. <laughs> now you talk about a step down in net. Okay. <laughs> well, it became very important to get a goalie. And Kelly Rudy was the goaltender that they picked up in a trade. And Kelly was well-seasoned, so well-established. And probably, I mean, 
our relationship was fantastic. We loved back and forth, going off each other. Uh, but at some point, uh, I was kept as security in case there was an injury. Uh, but there was to be a player named later. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, back when the NHL just did things and you had no rights. And so I was that, I, that guy that made his way back to Long Island to fill in for Kelly who at the time, the Islanders, we were completely rebuilding. We were out of our dynasty. We had three young defensemen that were all rookies. And we were uh, not the Islander team of the 80s, but the new Islanders, so to speak. And so uh, that was an opportunity for me to stay, have that playoff run. If something happened with, with Kelly, I was there to fill in. Uh, but I was on the move that year because they they had their goaltender. And, uh, okay, Grant Fuhr to Kelly Rudy, eh, you know, Lamborghini, Ferrari. You know, Grant Fuhr to Glenn Healy, uh, that black Ford Escort with no air conditioning I drove, and the Lamborghini. So it was a big step down. But that's why well, I ended you know, up at New calendar. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it, maybe that's the way it was sort of looked at at the time. But as it turned out, you you did pretty damn good uh, with the Islanders. Uh, well, first, I want to talk about the severed finger. You had a, a, a finger severed when you are playing with the Islanders. Were they able to reattach yeah. it? Tell us about that. Uh, well, everyone watched that interview I just did about my fitness and decided to cut my finger off because I was like, torture that man. I know. It's at the end of a practice, uh, you know, I always stick around after because I told you, conditioning, take as many shots as you can. That's what I do, the 10-pound skipping rope and all, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. sticking around after practice, we were playing Montreal the next day, and Stevie Thomas had a great shot, uh, took a slap shot. It kind of dipped, but it was going in with a funny spin. And it hit my stick. And when pucks come in, they don't come in flat. They come in spinning, right, like a circular saw. That's just this, yep. the, the way the puck rotates. And that puck underneath my glove, like a, a skill saw, whatever you want to call it, uh, took the top of my finger off. Kind of knew I was in trouble. Thought it would be stitches. Uh, and then when I got into the locker room to see what it was, it was significant. Uh, so much so that I nearly passed out and threw up and did all of that. And the trainer, a gentleman by the name of Ed Taberski, a wonderful guy, but he actually went in and took the tip of the finger out. We put it into some saline, and off I went to New York University Hospital. And uh, a great doctor there, Charles Malone, who's one of the best hand doctors at the time in the world, he sewed my finger back on. And it is disgusting, gross, and hope no one's eating, but that's that <laughs> saved my career. And, uh, you know, I, I missed a bunch of time. Uh, and uh, and then I did come back late in that 92 season. We had, uh, after the 10-day strike, we had three games in three days. I played all three, hadn't skated in eight weeks. Uh, you could not get a redder face. I looked like Barney the dinosaur. I uh, hadn't worked out, hadn't trained, but I figured, well, what, what the heck? Why wait a year? Just get back in the net and play. Uh, but a scary situation, probably could have ended my career, but again, fate took over, and finger held up it's a little shorter than most of my other ones uh, not much feeling in it so that's not the one i changed the converter with on the tv uh but <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's still on so and thank you steve thomas and every time i see steve and we uh, kind of approach each other he kind of looks at me like this you know <laughs> i got like i'm napoleon and they call him you know they call him stumpy yeah. all right so yeah exactly so uh, we joke <laughs> about it uh, it, it is it's it's true it's legend but it's true yes uh, right. part of my finger in a cup off to the hospital called my wife no cell phones hey my finger just got severed going to the hospital bye what 
<laughs> what? <laughs> Did you elaborate? Um, and yeah. it's, hey, eight hours of surgery and I'm fine. I'm good now. Yeah. Probably because I grew up by that Pickering nuclear reactor. Things just didn't <laughs> stick around in the joints the way they should. But I'm not blaming them. You know, you did. You talked about bouncing back that year. You rebounded nicely. And matter of fact, we have some video of you beating the Leafs handily right here. Uh, uh, you had some, you know, good. Look like a guy who hasn't really been hurt playing really well here. This is the end of that 92 season. And then, of course, no, I think- uh, eh? I think this was Who's the game. Left-handed uh, shot. That would have been Wendell there. Uh, but Wendell Clark, got, yeah, yeah. Eddie Olachek uh, was set, trying to set a record for the most um, games with a point. Whatever the record was, they gave him a silver plaque before the game, and they wheeled out the player that, uh, you know, he, he was going to beat the record that night. All he had to do was get a point on me, and I stopped his record. And Eddie and I are the best friends uh, for many, many years. And um, every time I see him, I, I don't do the Steve Thomas thing, yeah. but I do the you know, as like, where's your silver plaque, big boy? I guess you uh, <laughs> didn't beat the record that night, huh? Uh, but yeah, that you know, anytime you got to play in Maple Leaf Gardens, anytime you got to play in the Montreal Forum, anytime you got to play in Boston Garden, but particularly in Maple Leaf Gardens, Saturday night, it just was, as a kid, I went to one game as a kid. It was uh, I sat in the greens was the California Golden Seals. Now I know why I got the tickets. Okay, I'm just letting you know. Okay, yeah. I figured that out now. Yeah, no one wanted to go to that game, uh, but it was special to play there. And e- even you know Wayne will tell you it was something different than a a game in Vancouver at the PNE or a game in in any other arena. It just had this mystique and it was so bright and everything was so clean and. And so uh, that was one of those games. So when when those were penned in on your schedule, Maple Leaf Garden, Saturday night, Hockey Night in Canada, trust me, you were doing everything you could to make sure that that was the game you were going to show up for. And uh, on that particular particular night we did. And I'm sorry, Eddie, but I'll see if I got a silver plaque I can give you somewhere here and we'll give you a presentation. But we, put, we yeah. shut him down that night. It was good. I think the record was held by Sittler, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, yes, 92-93, uh, Islanders have that great, incredible playoff run. Uh, 18 playoff games you guys played, and you were the man, like Heels. Uh, you know, you guys knocked off the Capitals. Uh, then the two-time defending Stanley Cup chance from Pittsburgh. You know, and I don't have to tell you, that wasn't a bad Penguins team. Um, that has to be one of the bigger stunners uh, in any still playoff histories, would you say? I mean, it's right up there. Well, I'm just looking at the one gentleman there, number 17. His name is Steve Junker. He played that game seven. Uh, I didn't know him before the game. I'd never met him. I met him before the game, and I've never seen him since. So <laughs> you'd think we were we were a team at Yager, Francis, Lemieux. You know, they, they had breezed through the season. They were a team that was uh, a dynasty. They were so much better than we were. We had three rookies on defense. We had Malikoff, we had Kasparaitis, and we had Dennis Vasky. Uh, we had Tom Curvers as our veteran, uh, God rest in peace, Tommy, uh, but just a good bunch of guys. Pat Lally was our captain, so to speak. And, uh, you know, Pierre Turgeon didn't play at all in the series because Dale Hunter hit him about right. four and a half minutes. He scored that one goal. Thought he had the puck, but he was actually at a concession stand, Dale. But he, he didn't <laughs> have the puck. He was, you know, yeah. he was finished. He showered up. But uh, So we went into that series 
And honestly, we didn't think we could win. And Al Arbor sat a chair in the middle of the room, and he went to Pat Flatley, and he just asked Pat, could you tie one shift against Mario Lemieux? Just tie. You don't have to win it. Tie it. Of course I can. And then he went to the Seagull, which was Ray Ferraro. Because he wasn't squawking, he was, you know what. So <laughs> could you tie against Mario Lemieux? Yes, I can. And then he sat and said, there we go, after he got through 10 guys. There's the first period. Now let's get to the second period. Let's do it again. And he broke it down to, and all we need to do then is win one shift in game seven in overtime. Just win one shift and we win. And sure enough, we get to game seven in overtime and we won one shift. And David Bullock scored that uh, goal that was improbable and practical. And we t- we knocked off Goliath. Uh, and hey, they were a better team. They were a dynasty, all Hall of Famers. Uh, Mario was Mario. He was magical. Yager was just starting out. He was a rookie. Uh, but boy, you could see he was going to have a long career. He's still playing now. But uh, that team just, we just came together, a bunch of young guys, and we uh, we believed. And I think that showed everybody around the league that, uh, you know what, anything can happen in a two-week war. And uh, that year, Montreal Canadiens won the Stanley Cup. They actually had two parades. I don't know if you know this, but they had one parade when we beat Pittsburgh because they knew they didn't have to play them. And then they had yeah. their second one yeah. in the Cups. Uh, we did the Canadians a big favor by knocking off the champs. That's for sure. But it was, a, you know, again, a collective team effort of a bunch of guys that believed that they could do it. And players stepped up and they stepped out of their roles and into new roles. And we had the best mentor and coach in all of hockey ever in Al Arbor. And he's the guy who uh, led the way and gave us the strategy. And uh, I don't think you'll find a player who have anything negative to say about that great man. He was just an incredible genius behind the bench, but even more than that, he made us great ambassadors and he was like a father to all of us. Uh, not every goalie gets into a hockey fight, but uh, you got into one with Bob Airy uh, when you're facing the Penguins. <laughs> what was happening here? Uh, you know what? I, I'm over five in my fights, and uh, in this particular <laughs> one, um, so you see, you see uh, Lemieux jumping in there, um, and and Erie and uh, Bobby and I. We joke about this. I mean, I was throwing so many rights, I didn't even know who I was swinging at. And when it all was kind of said and done, and and you know, we the, the dust had settled, and the referees had got in, and I think I threw a thousand punches here, but I'm not sure. Uh, I, somehow the exchange happened and I ended up with Lemieux and he just looked at me and goes, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, sorry, sorry. I don't know. I didn't know what else to say to him. Uh, but yeah, this was, uh, again, I, I can be hotheaded. Uh, my nickname in Toronto was Headcase Healy for a couple of reasons. I don't know why they gave me that nickname. I, I refuse to talk about it, but. I might become that head case again. But, uh, yeah, I didn't do well in fights. Um, you know, hey, when we were with the Kings, I mean, I would make my way, hey, 200 feet down the ice and I'd be just looking for, like, the trainer out here. Can I grab somebody like a fan or something? <laughs> um, I went down, I ended up with David Maley. I think he separated both my shoulders. Uh, Ron Hextall desperately tried to fight me. I don't know why. I think I'm a nice guy. But I, I At least six occasions stood at center banging a stick and I would be in the net going, you know, <laughs> Coming there, staying right here. Here we go. So, uh, but hey, I'm not a fighter, and Bobby and I laugh about that one. And I'm telling you, that no kid will look at that and go, fighting one on one. Here's what you do: put your head down, swing as fast as you can. Doesn't matter who you hit, what you hit, 
Bull, judge, anybody. And then when you wake up, you've got one of the greatest players in the game looking at you going, what are you doing? <laughs> well, not everybody has that kind of an experience, that's for sure. Uh, I want to talk about that rivalry you guys had with the Rangers. And uh, we've actually got a video of you being run into by Alexei Kovalev. Uh, obviously didn't make an effort to stop here. A uh, bit of a cheap shot by Kovalev, would you say? Now, this is about <laughs> a big dive as you're going to ever get, like seriously. I, he hit me. He's about 180 pounds. I mean, uh, like, I knew he was in the block. He was going to try to deep me 65 times. And it's in Madison Square Garden. If you're not trying to sell a call here, like you're kidding me, right? Um, so anyways, at the end of the day, uh, Islanders hated the Rangers. Rangers hated the Islanders. Uh, there would always be those two fans in Madison Square Garden. Uh, one would wear number 19. The other one would wear number 40. And they'd go up to the blue shirts where everyone has a weapon. Everyone has a gun or a knife or something, right? And then they would turn back and it would be 1940. And they'd be chased out of the building. Uh, you know, the hot and sucks call because of a hit that Dennis had back in the 70s. Uh, but there's no love lost between these two teams. None whatsoever. Uh, we beat them out that year. Uh, the playoffs. We ended up going to the playoffs to play that Pittsburgh team. And I was like two games left in the season. We won an overtime and I went out as one of the stars, went out with no gloves on and decided to give the fans the finger, which would have cost me a lot of money if, you know, we had the, the, the rules the way they are now. We just can't tell fans to beat it. Uh, and that summer I ended up with the Rangers and I'm thinking the last look at these <laughs> Ranger fans was skating around center ice with my hands in the air, you know, doing what? So uh, hated rivalry. First game I ever played against the Rangers, I could hear this thumping noise, and I said to Pat Flatley, what's that noise? He said, well, it's the fans. They're in the building. Like, this is the biggest game you're going to play anytime you play that other team from across the bridge. And uh, he was right. You know, they uh, both, both fan bases disliked each other. When Pat LaFontaine was an Islander and he got knocked out, the ambulance tried to take him out. They tried to uh, uh, flip the ambulance over. Like, who does that other than fans that love their team? So, uh, But that's one of the best rivalries in all of hockey, and somehow I ended up on both teams, and I don't know how. One of the, Probably one of the greatest in all the sports. By the way, did you give the – was the finger the, the short one? Is that what the – no, it was a longer one, so they could all see it. Oh, my gosh, yes. Very proud daddy moment. I just hope that you don't have that on video, Joe. Please, you don't. No, oh, no. thank God. Way to go, Vic. You missed one. Yeah. Okay, so here we are uh, uh, getting picked up by the Rangers. Obviously, they were impressed by your, that great playoff run you had because, uh, you know, you end up with blue shirts, the evil empire, really, if you, if you will. Uh, but here's what you had to say about changing jerseys at the time. Uh, Vic, well, uh, right now, you know, the fans still think I'm an Islander, so <laughs> I get a few boos every now and then. Um, we, we've hurt the team a little bit when I was with the Islanders, and they, they haven't forgiven me yet. So, you know, it's tough for me because I, I go back to the island and I get booed. <laughs> I go to the Rangers because I was an Islander and I get booed, and I'm booed in Pittsburgh, and I'm booed in Washington. Well, the Everywhere you go, Glenn Healy gets booed. What's that? And I got booed at home. You know, it's amazing. It's everywhere I go. This is, are you seeing a trend? Where's a trend? Here? <laughs> uh, so true, right? We, uh, that was a weird summer. It was the summer of expansion. 
And they lost John Van Beesbrook in the expansion draft to Florida. And through the course of that expansion draft, I ended up getting picked up uh, by Anaheim. I was a mighty duck. And uh, I was in Ireland with a bunch of players having a good time after a great season. You know, we had no cell phones and, you know, go from the ducks. Then I went to Tampa and Tampa could pick up one player in the expansion draft. Phyllis Pizzito picked me up. Then he traded me to the Rangers. Uh, Neil Smith said, I got to fill in for Ben Beesbrook. And maybe this experienced guy who did what he did can help Mike Richter. So that journey happens. And I'm in Ireland, not knowing any of this has happened. They're all trying to call to welcome me to the team, to tell me they're sad that I'm traded. And then to welcome me to the new team, tell me it's sad I had to trade you. And welcome me to the new team. And here's this a-hole in Ireland not even answering a single phone call from anybody because <laughs> no idea I was even picked up anywhere until Pat Bladley called his mom and, and they were having a chat and she said, you know, in her Irish tone, you know, you're not going to believe it, Pat, but Glenn's a ranger. And, and we couldn't believe it because those teams don't trade, they don't talk, they don't, they don't even look at each other. And sure enough, you know, 10 days later, I basically called the rangers and said, did something happen while I was gone? Yes. And so I was Benedict Arnold for leaving, even though I had no say in it. And I had a number of stops. And my name's still on the dressing room for the original Anaheim Mighty Duck. And I never got a sweater. And when they won the cup, they never got me a ring. So I'm disappointed with a lot of stuff. But I'm going to get over it. Well, you know, the Rangers didn't directly trade you it was you know through via anaheim and then it was via you know tampa so i mean you know there you go so yeah yeah there you go yeah, <laughs> you, you, you moved a lot in a very short period of time yeah i did there yes. Su um, suitcase smith move over uh 93 94 rangers here we go uh now i i know you 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 kind of uh you know you you give richter all, all the credit for it but you know if it wasn't for glenn healy back back and Rick, richter up uh i don't know because in two playoff games, you had a, a goals against average of 0.89 and a save percentage of 941. So, I mean, you were there. That was obviously helpful. Uh, that Rangers team, though. Yeah. The very first day, we had training camp that year in uh, London, England. If you were had the Mustard Challenge Cup, and we played the Leafs. The Leafs went to the Final Four that year, uh, lost L.A. So they were a really good team. And I can recall the very, very first time that I stepped on the ice, um, very first time, uh, I thought, and I said to my wife, this team could win the cup. This is that good. We were good with the aisle. We had a great coach, but this team is fast and experienced and skilled. And, you know, and we went to, to England and destroyed uh, a Leaf team that was really, really good. And it took a little bit of time to get used to Mike Keenan. Um, you know, it's, hey, Guantanamo Bay has its privileges, but it's hard to get used to at the start. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> right. once we kind of got things rolling, we were a President's Trophy team full of it. And uh, we didn't have a goalie coach, so it was Ricky and I. And he was a complete, pure thoroughbred. And I would add the, the, the thinking element to it. So I would go through all the shooters. Matt Sundin loves backhand deep. Wendell Clark, he likes high glove. You know, go through – a Dougie Gilmore, five hole. I go through all of it so that he would have an idea because he just played in the Hall of Famer and so damn good. So we were yin and yang. We fed off each other. And we were also, you know, mental coaches because you needed to be with Mike. It was a challenge at times. And there were mutinies and there was a whole bunch of people jumping off the ship. And 
And we tried as a group to keep it all together. But that team was an exceptional team uh, from wire to wire. Uh, but even them, with that team and all the championships, all the Stanley Cups, and the greatest leader in all the sport, we still had to take it right down to the wire uh, in, into game seven against a good Vancouver team. And we had to take it right down to the wire against the New Jersey Devils into, into double overtime. Stefan Matteau to beat the Devils in Brodeur. So it was not easy to win, even with the, the, the bouquet of talent that we had on that group. Matteau, Matteau, Matteau. And that was after, of course, that greatest leader of all time you're talking about guaranteed that game six win against, you know, Drew. Yeah, well, you should expound a little bit on it. Uh, we woke up to the, and again, when they talk to you in the dressing room, what's he supposed to say? We can't win. It's over. I've got my golf clubs all polished up and we've got a vacation <laughs> plan. No, yeah, we can win. Of course we can win. But the guy who writes the story, as you know, is not the guy who writes the headline. So the headline gets put out, we will win. And we all woke up thinking, what did you just do? Hey, oh, we enough pressure on us now, but look out. And so uh, not only did he say we'll win, but he scored a hat trick in the third period to make sure we win. And so uh, that was vintage mess. He was as, as great a leader and as great an athlete and arguably uh, the best leader in any sport. And when the leader says we will win, we will win. And we did. How important was Messier when it comes to dealing with Keenan? Is he like the, the go-between guy or is he like, uh, how, how, is he the guy who handles Keenan? What, 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 what went on there? Well, we were lucky. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, there were, there were a number of guys on that team that could have been captains. Adam Graves could have been a captain. You know, Craig McTavish was a captain. But the, the Edmonton Oilers, he came over. Leadership, bountiful. And so it was leadership by committee. But at the end of the day, when, you know, you, Captain Hook has to be spoken to, you'd like for there to be one sacrificial lamb that you kind of push in the door and say, you go, it's your, you go talk to him. And so the thing about Mess is you can't refute what he says because it's, it's true. And he just lived it. And he knows how to win. And Mike hadn't won. He might have won with those guys in the Canada Cup, but not at the level of lifting that trophy over your head. And Mark had done it five times and knew what the recipe was and knew what had to be said at what time, when he had to speak to the team, when he had to not speak to the team, when he had to speak to the coach. So, yes, he was uh, like the biggest cog in the wheel when it came to making sure that that environment in the dress room was one that everybody mattered. I don't care if you play one shift, you picked up towels like you were Benny Patrizzi in the locker room. Everybody mattered and everyone was going to grab an oar. And uh, that's why when you look at our Stanley Cup ring, there's, there's two words on it that people go, what does that mean? And it says, heave ho. And basically, we would do that at the end of each stretch with Eddie Olachek. And it's grab an oar, guys. Heave ho. We're going to do this mm -hmm. together. Mark was the biggest piece of the puzzle for us to make sure we didn't lose sight of that mission and that mission statement. You talked about how hard it is to win that Stanley Cup. What was it like to finally get a chance to hoist it? Well, it's a dream come true because they don't put your first name on the cup. You put your last name. And if you go back to your first question about starting hockey and all the sacrifices your parents made and your family had to make and your sister had to make so that 
she didn't get to go to her dance because Glenn needed new goalie pads or he needed new skates. All those sacrifices, maybe not eating on certain nights because we had to buy a new stick. Uh, your last name goes on it. So the whole family gets to celebrate in that Stanley mm. Cup win. And when your name goes on it, it goes on for a little bit of time. It's called like forever. So you can't take that away. And uh, I think every player dreams of making the NHL. Then they dream of staying. And once you've stayed and once you've made, there's only one thing to do, and that's to win a cup. And the, the players that get to win it, it's the best thing that they'll ever have happen next to you know, having their first child or their second child or third child. But there's not many emotions in your world that are better than that. It is in, in for every player that laces on their skates, left skate first or right skate first, that is your, that's your top of the mountain. That's your Kilimanjaro. You, you've made it when you win that. And so uh, that was the way it was for me. Just a dream come true. And a kid from Pickering, Ontario, who grew up by eight nuclear reactors. I never thought I'd be doing that. <laughs> That's 35 pounds I've ever lifted. Yeah, you know, and that kid from Pickering uh, decided he'd get this opportunity to play a little closer to home, finally getting a you know, chance to play for the Leafs. And I'm sure you had the hopes of, of uh, you know, getting a chance to lift the Stanley Cup with, with the hometown team. But uh, tell us about playing in Toronto. Was it a tough place to play? No, it wasn't. And people talk about, all oh, the pressure is enormous. You know, if, if the fans or the media is putting more pressure on you than you are putting on yourself to excel as an athlete, to be the player that you can be, then this is probably not the place where you're going to end a long drought and bring a Stanley Cup championship. I found the fans to be enjoyable in, in many ways. They loved you no matter good, bad, or indifferent. They looked at fourth liners like they wore first liners on any other team in any other city. And they show up. Well, the guys that won those cups in the 60s, they built a culture in that arena that says you show up on a Saturday or Wednesday, whatever day the game is, it's the toughest ticket to get in town. So having 20,000 fans packed every night and not playing in front of 3,500 in Arizona, that's a bad thing. I think that's a great thing. Uh, my only disappointment was not bringing the championship. If we had done that, uh, and I had done it in New York with, with a great group of guys, we had a great group of guys in Toronto, so close, but that would have been a complete dream come true. And uh, But it's, again, hard to win, uh, but Toronto is not a hard place to play. And, uh, yeah, is it tough to go out and have dinner? It's tough to go out anywhere and have dinner these days. The gig is just it's a different game. It's their game now. But at the end of the day, having a bunch of fans that love you, having a city that is just hockey crazy about one particular team, there, there can't be a negative in that for any player ever. So New York, hey, they'll tell you you suck right on the street. Like they will stop you and <laughs> rip you to shreds. They have four newspapers that are hockey related and they have another couple that are tabloid related that are just looking to tear you down with what you do off the ice. We had one particular player who would visit um, some establishments with baseball players. And, of course, the photographer would always take a picture of the baseball player. And this player on our team, he got his watch in that picture more times because he had his arm around him. So he was, yeah, that's me there. That's my watch. That's my watch. I was with him. Yeah. So the tabloids in New York are far more sensational than people saying you should have, could have, would have here. And if you don't think that you should have, could have, would have here, and it's a uh, – Joe Tilly or Steve Simmons or uh, Al Strachan, who's being the voice of reason, 
go play somewhere else. Well, yeah, it's certainly, uh, there's nothing wrong with being, you know, uh, part of a sport that people care about. I mean, really, really care about. I mean, you know, like you said, you can go to a lot of different places and, you know, some place in Arizona and in some college arena with uh, 3,400 other fans and uh, watch the team. And, and I don't think a player, if I'm a player, that's something that I want to attach myself to. But in addition to playing in Toronto and, you know, playing in the Mecca of hockey, you also get a chance to do some acting. Uh, we have a, a clip from a spot you did with Jim Ralph. <laughs> Play that, Vic. How come everyone thinks goaltenders are weird and strange? I don't know. Could be the 100-mile-an-hour slap shots. Yeah, I guess. And then there's maybe the pressure, too. You know, the pressure's killer. Whoa. Pressure's nuts. Goal mouth scramble. Oh, yeah. oh. You know what really bugs me? What? You know those commercials on TV where they've got the goaltenders dressed in their full equipment standing on the street corner? Looking like idiots. Looking stupid. Those make me sick. They're awful. Awful. Ralphie, want to grab some wine? Yeah, let's go. There we go. Yeah, Two of the greatest um, goalies in Maple Leafs history right there. Yeah, did two I, of the funniest I guys in Maple Leafs history, right there. That's for sure. Did I win a Gemini? I don't know. I'm not sure if I did. <laughs> Probably not. Hey, uh, Ralphie was one of the best. He's one of the funniest guys. Anyone on the banquet circuit, go watch Ralphie. He's he's an incredible source of humor and uh, does a great job uh, in in the media side of things. And uh, and that was a really fun moment where the two of us were trying to make light of goalies are weird. The problem is goalies are weird. That's the problem. We were right. Well, you, you made you brought up some good points there. Like, what is it wanting to face a hundred mile an hour slap shot? And, and, and you know, that's it, uh, it's you know not something that everybody wants to do. No, uh, the only way I got through it was I, I did realize they were trying to miss me. Right, right. Trying that's to miss. True. They want to score, so they're trying to miss. Me. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It does hurt when you get in the way of some of them for sure. Yeah, but your job there is to try to get, get in the way. So anyway, we talked earlier about your Scottish heritage, and, and I'm sure folks are now aware that uh, you used to play the bagpipes. They listen to the early part of this, pro this, uh, this program. We actually have some video of you playing the broad, uh, playing the bagpipes bag well, with the Maple Leafs. Uh, here we go. Yeah. Like if that you, is impressive. Kept, yeah, no, if you kept it going, you would have had me. This was the opening of Leafs TV. You would have had me piping him out when it went under. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, one of my finer moments there, piping in the station. It was uh, it was the start of something in Toronto that was pretty cool. But, hey, I, it's led all around the world for me. A couple of Paul McCartney concerts where we played Mullican Tire. Yes. You know, Vimy, Vimy Ridge, the D-Day Beaches, Carnegie Hall in New York. Uh, it, it has taken me all over the world doing something different than I would have ever done as an NHL player. So uh, thoroughly love that. It's a great passion. Still do it today. And uh, man, it's it's a we've got a fun group of, of guys and girls that get together, play in, on stage, put concerts together. And 
it's like you've taken your hockey team and now you've got your bagpipe team. And the bagpipe team, trust me, there's a lot more libation before the games than the hockey team, a lot more. So it does tend to lead to putting you astray at times, let me say that. But it's, it's a great passion, and I love it. And it's hey, pretty hard to play, play hockey after a couple of pints, but I'm sure the bagpipes is probably a little bit different story, right? And being on stage with Paul McCartney, I can say yeah. that's maybe the only time I got to play at the Air Canada Center because it was always Cujo. So I got to play at the Air right. Canada Center. It had to be with one of the Beatles, but I got to play. I mean, but what, what hockey player can say that he played with Paul McCartney? Other yeah, than not many. Yeah. Lundquist yeah. be next. You watch. You know, he, he always finds a way with that guitar to get up on stage with somebody, John McEnroe or, you know, ZZ Top or whatever. But he always finds a way. So he'll he'll dupe me. He'll find a way to one up. And I don't mind. So af after you leave, after you leave hockey, your last uh, games with the Leafs, uh, you spent uh, a number of years as an analyst for Hockey Night in Canada, TSN. Uh, we have some visit that, obviously. Uh, uh, did you enjoy that gig? Well, you know, I, I think the thing, when I retired, I got bought out by the Leafs. It hit the news. Uh, you probably reported it first. And um, and then yeah. Hockey Night called. And this was me getting into an argument with Mike Milbury. Um, that was easy to do. All you had to say, Mike, and then you were in an argument. Uh, but um, <laughs> when I first, when I so I retired and they called and they said, would you like to do it? I said, well, I'll try it. But if I suck after two weeks that's it i'm done i'm out right and my very first game was with the great don whitman and uh recall you know kind of in the booth in edmonton and you know the crowds after the anthem going crazy and don pushes his mute button and he looks at me he goes hey stupid you have to put your can on so canada can hear you i thought you could just hear me by me speaking kind of like a zoom call <laughs> no need that on and uh first whistle they put up the lines if you remember and so I started reading the lines, and then they were immediately brought down, like right away. I said, well, unless you were a speed reader, uh, good luck with that. And, but don't worry, next whistle, we're going to waste more of your time. We'll put the other team's lines up. And that next day, every executive from Hockey Night called me and said, you can't say that. I'm like, well, I said it. Like, what am I going to do? Uh, but that started a journey, and then we, we took that from the booth. We were the first to go down between the benches some studio analyst stuff and yeah it was a you know it was a fun way of trying to bring the game closer to the fans and uh so did i think i would do it for that long did i think i'd get to do multiple olympics all of that the answer is no i didn't but uh you know one season flies into another and before you know it you've been doing it for a long time but it was enjoyable i got to work with the best people in all of hockey both in the truck in the booth some of the great play-by-play -play guys, the Bob Cole, the Jim Houston's, the Don Whitman's, just the, the list goes on and on. The Shirelli Najaks, the Mitch Kersners, the guys that just are geniuses when it comes to putting a game on TV. Mark Askin, the, the list goes on and on. And I got to work with the best. Hockey in Canada, the coverage is second to none. There's no doubt about that. Um, after leaving the broadcast booth, well, you got uh, you spent some time with the NHLPA. Uh, tell us about your experience with that. Well, the you know the NHLPA and the NHL alumni they're really very similar. You know the NHLPA. My job was simple there. How do I make tomorrow better than today for players when it comes to collective bargaining? when it comes to arbitration, when it comes to their journey on the ice and, and making it the best journey you can possibly have. 
because it does end fast. And then with the NHL alumni, it's the same journey as how do I make tomorrow better than today for a bunch of players that paved the way for those players to drive on those same roads. And that, that doesn't mean arbitration. That doesn't mean salary negotiation. That basically means uh, it could be health care. It could be mental wellness. It could be getting your hip replaced. It could be maybe you need a, a coping mechanism and it's not healthy for your social slide. It could be you need, need structure in your day because as players, we all are about structure. And then that goes away as you retire as a player. Interconnectivity, making sure players don't fall through the cracks and have that social slide because the phone does stop ringing. As everybody knows that have fallen from grace from a great job, it gets pretty quiet pretty quick. And so all of those things, both jobs are very much the same, making tomorrow better than today for players. It, it just very distinctly different at what that better tomorrow looks like for current players versus alumni. What are the biggest challenges for, for alumni, for the alumni? What are the biggest challenges you run into for those players? Well, I, I think it's a very short career and it's a very long life. And what you want in that long life is as great a journey as you had in your hockey career. Because it is difficult to replace that chasm with a better job because there isn't a better one. It is very hard to replace that structure that we had in that job to replace the purpose you have every day. I knew what my purpose was when I played in the NHL. Go win the game tonight. Not, not hard, right? Go have a great warm-up and kick the ass of the other team. Now, when it comes to, you know, not having that, what what is your purpose? And everyone wants that. Everyone needs that. Everyone uh, wants that second journey to be great. And for some players, it's easy. They go on. They become general managers, coaches. They do well in the financial world. They own car dealerships. They sell cars. They do whatever that purpose and what drives them every day. But there are some that fall through the cracks and that transition because we all retire, all of us. I don't care if you're Sidney Crosby. I don't care if you're Wayne Gretzky. You're going to retire. It, it's that making sure that that second journey is great, but making sure uh, that that transition is as easy as it can be. And so there's lots of programs that are available for transition. And there are lots of programs that are available to make sure that a player that falls through the cracks and you know, as we look at our journey, all of us as a triangle, the top of the triangle would be your acute intervention. Let's not get players to the top of that triangle where they have to go to rehab or they have a, an issue that is, you know, very difficult. Let's build out the base. Let's build up support. Let's build everything in their world to make sure that they never get to the top of the triangle. And, that, and that's our staff's job every day. Work for the players and make tomorrow better than today. Have... Uh post-concussion syndrome problems uh, being an issue for you guys? Well, I think it's, let's forget that word and just talk about functional integration. So if you have multiple concussive blows, there's a good chance that you're not going to be fully functionally integrated with your world. And that's just a fact. And we do have examples, all sports do, of many players that are like that. And then, you know, what ends up happening on the on the far end of the spectrum is uh, the players then, uh, the world is not functionally integrated with them. And there's very few people that want to deal with some of those player issues. Well, that's where we deal with it head on. And I can honestly say from what we have built with our social workers, we've had a number of them, we built with our chief medical officer, who's a, a leading uh, neurosurgeon throughout the world. So if you're going to ask someone about that, he's the guy, don't ask me. Uh, but uh, my phone rings and I never have to say I'm sorry to a player or a spouse. We have help for everybody. 
and anybody, and uh, that help is in the, you know, the hands of a professional. You know, I can take the call, and I might be a good guy from Pickering, but I'm certainly not a professional in some matters that are of major significance. So we have people in place that handle that. But yes, you know, the functional integration of multiple concussive blows, that is no doubt a problem. And it might, again, there's no medical documentation. Does it lead to early Alzheimer's, lead to early Parkinson's? Uh, I'm no doctor, but, uh, you know, if I can draw the lines to the dots, I go, ah, yeah. mm-hmm. I can see mm-hmm. this all down. Uh, but I'm not playing the blame game. I'm doing the hope and help game. That's what I'm doing. I'll let the other guys fight over the other stuff. That's how do I get hope and help in a family that needs that hope and help? Right. I guess some things are beyond your pay grade, right, Hills? Uh, I want to, uh, you know, yeah. I want you to put your analyst hat back on for just a second here before we go uh, and analyze this current Maple Leafs team for us. Well, I would say this. When you watch the team the past two years and you've looked at deficiencies in the lineup because they haven't, you know, kicked the ball across the line to get to even a fifth win yet, which would be important, uh, have they answered the questions and the deficiencies that they had in their lineup from last year. And if you can say that they have, and I know they've got Matthews, and I know they've got Martyr and Tavares, I, I get that. But it's the deficiencies that have not allowed them to get past that first round. If the answer is yes, they address them, yes, they are in a better spot, uh, then we have that hope that we'll get a fifth win and we'll get to a place we haven't been to in about two decades. And if the answer is no, uh, then they got a lot of work to do. Uh, but we're one game in, and you know everybody is an armchair quarterback in this city, and that's what I love about this city. Is you know what's important is people care. They care about that shield, their team, and their players. When they stop caring, then we got a problem. But have they addressed those issues? That's for another show. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, okay, so who wins the cup in your estimation? Well, you got to think Colorado is the champ. So you're going to take it out of their dying hands? I know when we won it one time, the only focus I had was let's win it a second time uh, because there's nothing better. So until someone takes that cup away from them and the skill level they have and the way they play, and speed and the physicality, and, you know, I don't even know if they won with a goalie. I don't know if they needed no. one to win that cup. No. And so yeah. – uh, for me, I, I look at them as they're the top dog in any building they go in, any building, because of their reputation, because they're the champs. They probably have a one-goal little cushion because people will be fearful of them because they're that good. But this league, uh, coming out of uh, 2005, was set to create with a financial system parity. And there is no question that parity exists in this league where one year you could go to the Stanley Cup final and wear that red sweater from a couple hundred miles down the road in the 401 here, and the next year you don't even make the dance. It's one win a month. That's it, in or out, and that's it. So uh, stay tuned. That's why we dress up 82 times a year. Stay tuned. Well, thanks for this, Heels. It's been awesome. It's been a pleasure having you on. Uh, look forward to playing some small ball. Uh, Probably next yeah. uh, summer. Now I'm thinking it because it's, uh, it's getting a little cold out there for, you know, us fur weather golfers. Yeah, uh, I'm a complete chicken. Uh, there's no question. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah, yeah. And I'm not 
sitting in one of those little pope mobiles with the heater on it. Just here we go. Time to hit my next shot. And out you go. No. Yeah, I'll wait for yeah. it to be next to the And yet, yet the dummy that I am will go pay thousands of dollars to go to Scotland and play St. Andrews in a gale and a hailstorm and a windstorm and a snowstorm. And that'll all happen on the front nine. But I won't go to my local yeah. club when it's a wee bit cold out. Oh, you big chicken. <laughs> I know, but I get to go to Mexico soon. So uh, that'll be fun. We'll golf there. Yeah. Um, if, if you happen to be in Mexico, come on out and I'll, I'll feed you around and golf. But otherwise, we'll, we'll see you next year, buddy. Uh, thanks again. And uh, thanks for doing this. Love it. Thank you for having me. And uh, keep up your great All work. Right, All right. Thanks, Glenn. All right. More sports when we come back. More Joe Tilly's Great Canadian Sports Show coming up after the break. Guests on Joe Tilly Sports receive a gift certificate from Classica Imports. Top of the line imported men's clothing. Check out the Classica Essential Collection now. Go to shopclassica.com. Addiction Rehab Toronto, Toronto's number one alcohol and drug treatment center, saving lives, reuniting families. The only treatment center in the province to offer medical detox, treatment, sober living, and lifetime aftercare all in one place. Our unique and specialized programs are designed to equip our clients with the tools to successfully lead a life of dignity, respect, and purpose. Let us help save your life or your loved one's life Call today for more information or to facilitate an intervention. 1-855-787-2424 or visit addictionrehabtoronto.ca. Joe Tilly Sports is brought to you by COSA, Central Ontario Standard Bread Association, providing a united voice for harness horse people racing at Ontario tracks. Check out your benefits today at COSAonline.com and check out COSA TV on Facebook and YouTube for all the latest harness news and live action updates. Live racing year-round. Go to HPIBet.com for all your wagering options. Become a member today and your first bet is free. That's HPIBet.com. You know why that happened? You didn't fix your ball mark. The birds around here are very protective of the course, and when people don't take care of it, this is what happens. It's pretty simple. Just find your mark, fix it, and at least one other. Hey, look at the bright side. We're not up on the northern course. They've got bears and moose. Visit moregolf.ca today. You'll find everything a golfer could need from balls, gloves, and clubs to custom fitting opportunities and training gear. Go to moregolf.ca and get $20 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Just enter the promo code JTSports.
Yes, it's time for my Cosa Swiss Pick of the Week. Last week, I went to Summerside PEI, where they returned to racing after Hurricane Fiona. I took Moonrider, who never had a shot, got parked outside behind some slower traffic. His boy, Elroy, with Ken Murphy in the buggy on the rail, went right to the front, stayed there, cruising to victory in 158-1. Murphy's third win on the night, trained by Phil Sizer. Burnout Hanover got up for second at 17-1. to The 1-7 exactor returned $304.20. This week, we're back at Mohawk for Friday night's eighth race, a pace for fillies and mares. Let's go with the number five horse, Snow Shark, who came oh so close last time out. Travis Cullen drives for trainer Jody Cullen. I also like the 358 exacta and triactor. A reminder, the Breeders' Crown is coming to Woodbine Mohawk Park October 28th to 29th. 12 championship races over two incredible nights of racing, several million dollars in purses. For all the racing updates, visit Costa TV on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Go to hbibet.com for your wagering options. This is the Excellent Sports Adventure. Brought to you by Lycom. Well, the Maple Leafs were in Montreal for the season opener, and this, well, this was nuts. Cole Caulfield had a big night for the hometown Habs. Caulfield leads the rush, snaps his second of the night past Matt Murray, making his Leafs debut. Leafs down by one late. John Tavares gets it ahead for William Nylander. Nylander beats Jake Allen. That ties it up. But the Leafs get sloppy in their own zone. Jake Muzzin puts it right on the stick of Nick Suzuki to Josh Anderson, who scores with 19 ticks left as the Habs stun the Buds for three. Oh, no. It was a devastating setback for the Blue Jays. It was painful, but hey, they will bounce back. At the end of the day, it was still a good season. Just a really bad night. The Jays had to win this game to prolong their season, and it looked like they had it in the bag. They had an 8-1 to lead in this game. Both men couldn't hold it. The ball fell into no man's land. And you got to give the Mariners credit. They scrapped back to win this game. Seattle is moving on. The Jays are done. That comeback by the Mariners was next level. Oh, it's tough seeing the Mariners celebrate like that. So what happens now? They need another starting pitcher for sure. Some bullpen help. And GM Russ Atkins says, hey, he's pretty happy with the work of John Schneider. Sat in here five days ago and felt very good about us making a deep run. And we're confident that we had a team to do it and we didn't. So uh, that was a disappointing outcome for us on Saturday. Being in a position where you've won 92 games, you've had uh, productive individual performances and collectively in season in 162 uh, been successful is a good starting point. And to the extent that we can be creative, we will always lean into that. And all of our energy has been uh, deployed towards winning and with John Schneider and feel very confident about the job that he has done and did. Um, <clears throat> I, I think it will be very difficult for us to find better than John Snyder, but out of respect for the organization, out of respect for John Snyder, I do want time to work through the process with him. Um, feel good about the group that's here and do feel like we can complement it in a way that will, will take another step for us. 
It's going to come down to the final two games of the season to decide top spot in the CFL East, but the Argos did get some help. Looking to hold on to first place with the Lions in town. Argos on the move. Chad Kelly in for short yardage. Kelly scoots in for six. The Lions rallied to take the lead, but here's McLeod. Bethel Thompson with quick drop. Puts up a beautiful ball for Tommy Heidel. The Guelph native makes a catch. 37-yard touchdown. Heidel's first in the CFL. Argos hang on to win it 23-20. In Montreal, Alouettes looking to keep pace. Last place, Red Blacks in town. Bob Dice's head coaching debut. Nick Arbel, buckle, sees the blitz coming, but gets it away. Great pass for Darwin Adams. A big game. Led to an Ottawa touchdown. Caleb Evans is for short yards. Gets it in for the score. RB scores 17 in the second half to stun the Owls. 24-18. The Argos say thanks. In Hamilton, Ticats try to keep their playoff hopes alive against the Rough Riders. Cats defense was outstanding. They sacked Cody Fajardo seven times. They also had a couple of picks. Hamilton wins it 18-14. The Raptors are getting ready to wrap up their preseason slate. They were home to the Bulls. Pascal Siakam has been looking pretty awesome. Spicy P stays with it for the finish. Siakam at 18 points. OG Ananobi with the well-timed theft. OG is going to take it to the cup. Wraps by 10 at the break. DeMar DeRozan, long lead feed to spring Javante Green. DeMar had 21 points, 8 assists, 8 rebounds. Delante Banton, Delano Banton, looks for the lane. Going to throw down, boom, but the Bulls take it 115-98. Wraps home to the Celtics Friday night in the preseason finale. Well, Canada rallied to earn a draw in their opener at the Women's Under-17 World Cup of Soccer. Annabelle Chukwu of Ottawa scored in the 67th minute to lift the Canadian side into a one-all draw with France. Uh, coming off that nice win a couple of weeks ago, Canada's Mackenzie Hughes is off to a pretty good start at the Zozo Championship in Japan. Now it's time for our shot of the week. God damn it. Four. right behind the stick. He's going to be happy with that one. <laughs> Today's environmental tip, reduce the electricity you use. Use energy efficient light bulbs instead of regular light bulbs. They last longer, which will save you money. Make sure that you turn off the lights, the TV and other appliances when you're not using them. And lower your air conditioning or heat settings when it's not necessary. Open your windows when fall arrives and wear more layers of clothing rather than cranking up the heat. RICOM, passionate people who turn complicated business problems into simplified technology solutions for public and private sector real estate, properties, portfolios, and enterprise customers. Optimize and future-proof smart buildings from the ground up. The latest in fault locating, base building network design, managed services, cybersecurity, data analytics. Our fault detection will support all smart strategies, define projected outcomes for capital planning, and reduce environmental impact. RICOM, smart protection solutions. At RICOM, we're building a path to a smart and environmentally friendly future. 
And we want to thank all the folks who make this show possible. These are friends, trusted business associates, and all-around great folks. We highly recommend them all. A reminder that the show is available on iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Google Podcast, and Pocket Cast, as well as the Spanglish Network, Zingo TV, and Buzz TV Live. Also, if you really want to check out our YouTube channel, folks, these are past shows there, weekly sportscasts, all kinds of cool segments. Like and subscribe. It's all free. Thanks once again to Glenn Healy for being on the program. Great to see Glenn again. Thank you for watching. Join us next week when Justin Bohr drops by. We'll see you then. Joe Tilly's Great Canadian Sports Show is brought to you by Brian Gribben Insurance Planning, helping you solidify you. your financial future. At BGIP, what we do that's unique in the marketplace is we show people how to spend and enjoy their money in their early years of retirement without the fear of running out. Also, we're able to do this without you having to change financial advisors. Please look us up at bgip.ca today. Let's book a 30-minute phone call to see how we can bring value to you and your family in your planning. Call Brian today for all your retirement needs. We did. 905-686-5678. Do you want to buy or sell a home? Could 31 years of real estate experience help you? Why not speak to an amazing team that loves to overpromise and overdeliver? Aldo has a tremendous team of experts on staff. They are committed to making your next real estate transaction smooth and comfortable. Call 416 Get Aldo or visit getaldo.com. MNP, a leading Canadian national accounting, tax, and business accounting firm. MNP proudly serves and responds to the need of their clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors. Through partner-led engagements, MNP provides a collaborative, cost-effective approach to do business and personal strategies to help people and organizations to succeed across the country and around the world. With local offices in Oshawa, Mississauga, Burlington, and more, their team is here to support you. Visit mnp.ca today to learn more. Hi, I'm Joe Tilly. This November, join me and my wife, Penny Claire, for a trip of a lifetime. Two weeks in Egypt and Jordan. Imagine yourself riding a camel beside the Great Pyramids, cruising the Nile River, viewing the temples at Abu Simbel, exploring the desert at Wadi Rum, visiting the ancient city of Petra, and swimming in the world-renowned Dead Sea. Only $41.99 all-inclusive with direct flight from Toronto, free upgrade to five-star hotels, and the cruise. Visit tripoppo.com and book today to get an extra $100 room bonus credit. Let's travel.